Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, So we have an impeachment trial starting today. Uh, The actual arguments will begin tomorrow. Apparently today uh, we will hear, we're we're doing this in the the, pretty early morning, we will have have a couple of hours to debate this question of whether or not it's constitutional to try uh, Donald Trump since he is no longer president, though he was impeached while he was president. And then beginning tomorrow at noon, there will be, each side will get eight hours to make its case. Then there will be some kind of a vote on whether to allow witnesses and uh, presuming that that vote says, no, there won't be witnesses. There'll be a vote to acquit him relatively soon thereafter. And that will be the end of everything. So my supposition here is that, uh, the House managers who want to take this seriously and treat this as though this is a trial without a foregone conclusion have their work cut out for them. They are going to have to do something uh, sort of sensational or uh, bring up matters we're not aware of at the moment that are so startling that they cause the Democratic senators uh, to say, you know what, we better we better keep this going either because the public gasps and the initial polling says, oh my God, this is terrible. Like we need to hear more of this or because they have surfaced some evidence that we don't know about that says that that has a smoking gun to it. Uh, Otherwise, uh, this is a pretty disgraceful spectacle. It seems to me, particularly given that I'm somebody who has argued that the impeachment and removal or the, or the impeachment and the, the sanction of no longer being able to run for office is necessary uh, because uh, the Democrats decided to impeach him in the house and the democratic uh, Senate moaned and screamed about how the uh, initial, the impeach the first impeachment was a railroading by McConnell uh, because he wouldn't allow witnesses. And now because uh, they want to let Joe Biden have time, you know, Joe, they want Joe to focus on Joe Biden and his giving lots of goodies to everybody. Uh, they now want to rush this trial through and get it the hell over with. And um, so I don't want to hear any good government talk out of these people ever because I, it's fine. So hypocrisy exists on both sides. But, um, you know, either you think that something happened here that requires uh, a public uh, airing or you don't. And they might as well just have voted to say that the that it was uh, unconstitutional to try him as a private citizen. So there wouldn't be this this ridiculous proceeding at all. So I'm done with my uh, with my. So, so my wait, rant. you're. I don't know what it is. <laughs> So you're saying there's a kind of split the baby uh, thing going on here among Democrats, where they want they, they want to show that they take it seriously enough to do some version of a trial, but because they've kind of been 
announcing through the media for the last week that, well, you know, we have to focus on the Biden agenda. You know, there are more important things the country is facing that they're kind of they are trying to have it both ways. And we have some of the media reports have been interesting because they've suggested that the the House Democratic managers of impeachment are not happy with the strategy that they're taking in the Senate for just the reasons that you outlined, John, because they actually want to build a case. And regardless of what the the vote is going to be and what we think it's going to be, they think it's important to have the evidence aired. I, I'm on their side of that because I think, you know, I made my little stance for the importance of procedure yesterday, but it sounds boring and tedious, but it is important to have a lot of this stuff put on the record, even if we do, as Noah suggested, need an, a broader bipartisan commission to explore everything that went, that happened leading up to and and the events of January 6th. Well, John, you're reading between the lines a little bit because you read the uh, House or, or rather the rules um, that were in, um, uh, agreed upon by both uh, parties in the Senate for how the impeachment trial will conduct itself. And it's sort of your inference. I, it's not one I disagree with, but it's an inference that they're going to sort of stick a moistened finger in the air after initial arguments to see whether or not there are witnesses, right? Well, my, my sense is that is that they have to vote separately on whether to have witnesses which is, you know, a kind of weird thing for a trial. I mean, what is a trial without witnesses? So so it's basically a trial without being a trial. It's a prejudged, foregone conclusion. Uh, and and so that's ridiculous. So you're going to have an argument on one side, an argument on the other side, and then they're going to vote that there won't be witnesses, and then there'll be some kind of closing <laughs> arguments after there were opening arguments that will say nothing different from the opening arguments, and then they'll vote the way they would vote if none of this had ever happened. So um, so as I'm saying, the only twist here could be some kind of a holy cow moment where something comes out or that they make an allegation or they use video evidence to support an allegation that, you know, Trump... Uh, literally planned the event or so I don't know what don't don't ask but, you know <clears throat> yeah but the thing is I think without witnesses there is no holy cow moment there is no there's that would be the the dramatic emotional perhaps um piece of this that 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 um things could hang on well they and have also- video they're gonna they are I mean we haven't heard how the Democrats are gonna present their case but what we've been told for weeks is that they have created some kind of a video timeline or video. So if they have stuff on tape where somebody says something that is a, you know, holy cow moment, then, then. uh, See, I don't think, I think one of the, one of the strongest arguments for calling witnesses and letting them just talk and be questioned about their experience or their role in any of this is that it, it allows for a level of transparency that can quash what is what even a video testimony won't, which is the conspiracy theorizing that's going to arise and erupt on the pro-Trump side about this entire procedure, right? We've already heard reporting that Trump plans to sit there in Florida and watch this whole thing on on spool on television, watching it as a kind of form of entertainment in a weird way. And I think, uh, you know, because the Democrats will put together their heart wrenching testimonial and then the Republican side will put together video of all of the Democrats over the years who've, you know, argued against recognizing the legitimacy of previous elections and say, well, see, this is just part of our this is not that big a deal. They were protesting something everybody does. And, And I think that that flattens. What should be actually, I don't know if there's an aha moment or an oh my God moment about uh, what happened on January 6th that we haven't already witnessed, but 
I think they need people to talk from different, they need people from law enforcement, they need members of Congress, they need people to describe what that was like. And they need some experts to say, here's why this was a was an insurrection, or was it, because we're already seeing debates, was this an insurrection, was it a riot, was it a protest? I think clarity on that question is really important. Well, the, the threat here is, <clears throat> from people like Lindsey Graham, is that both both sides get a bite at this apple. And if you call witnesses, then they're going to call witnesses. And the witnesses they're going to call are going to go all the way back to 2015 in an effort to establish that every Democrat who ever held office amid periods of, in, of insurrectionary violence in American urban, urban centers uh, in Missouri and Baltimore over the course of the Obama presidency, that they're responsible for that, too, is to make it a total circus. And they're saying we're going to make it a total circus. OK, well, look, I... I'm gonna. I mean, that's Lindsay. I don't know how many me, other. I'm people just gonna lay this out. If I think unexpectedly, I'm not sure the Biden people expected that their you know two trillion dollar bill, wish list bill, was going to poll as exceptionally as it's polling. They're in the high 60s on even on the most controversial of prescriptions here. I mean, if the most controversial prescription isn't the minimum wage. We can put that to one side. But uh, the size of the checks, the this, that, the other thing. Anyway, it turns out it's polling like gangbusters. And what they're seeing is, oh, my God, we can you know, end the month of February or something with this colossal uh, stimulus relief COVID-saving package that will be a transformative piece of legislation of a size and of a nature that the country has never seen before. I, you know, uh, don't let's not let this moment pass. We better, you know, jump on it and not let this distraction from to you know from January uh, derail what could be a, a presidency making moment. And that's fine, but I mean, you know, you can't spend a month saying that our democracy was threatened uniquely as never before and that a authoritarian democracy hater um, with the reins of power in the United States uh, abetted an effort to storm the Capitol to get his will, you know, to express his will and have the political circumstances change and then not do anything. Like, I mean, this is an argument that I share to some degree, but I don't have any power to, you know, to, to make it, they have the power to make it. And if they're going to just turn around and say, yeah, listen, you know, it's much more important that we get a checkout to people by March 15th. Now, maybe it is, but if that's the case, then they better stop shrying about how our country was threatened as it was never threatened before. And they were able to pay attention to it for a couple of weeks. They can really, really focus on it for, you know, a couple of weeks. It is kind of the ultimate irony here, because if you think about for how long um, Democrats and Trump's detractors were saying he is uh, a threat, how he's going to get his, how the the, the walls are closing in on him, you know, throughout various things, throughout, you know, the the Russia scandal, the first impeachment, um, uh, all the stuff in New York State. Um, so much talk about how he was certainly going to get his and so much of it um, inflated and unjustified at the time. Now they have this genuine thing. He, he, he is, he is, he has been impeached by the house. Um, 
and they don't have time. It's they're done. It is that is an incredible thing. Well, and you can't you can't spin this as like Ford, you know, pardoning Nixon and the whole country moving on because Trump himself has not taken responsibility for his role. And so that's actually I mean, I feel kind of like the the, the senators are being asked to be do the little tough love parenting here and they don't really have the stomach for it because they have other things they'd rather do. It's like, let's take the kids to Disneyland rather than like sit them down and make them have a timeout. But they need to step up and say, look, this this is where you're going to be held responsible, even if they don't have the votes. The trial procedurally is important for that reason. I think it does show, as you say, John, it shows the seriousness. And as Abe, to Abe's point, it's a really important point because there's a lot of us who have, you know, Trump outrage fatigue from having to having listened to this for so long. And it is really weird that, you're, as you say, they have the goods and they don't want to do anything with them. I mean, maybe they don't have the goods. I don't even know whether they have the goods, but I mean, you can't. You know, granted, the Senate and the House are two different bodies, and they have different incentives, and they have different roles and all of that. But the Democratic Party has been telling us that Donald Trump is a unique evil. He is the first person to be impeached twice. This is twice by a Democratic House. He is the first person, you know, and and, and it, it doesn't matter what it is that he says, uh, apparently, uh, everything he does is wrong and bad. Everything he's ever done is wrong and bad. Uh, and apparently, you know, all that needed to happen was an election to go the other way. And every objection that they have to him can now be subsumed under the glorious, you know, arrival of his successor. And so, um, you know, shut up then. Like I, I, you know, your, your, your high moral dudgeon, uh, is revealed simply to be an extremely effective partisan game. Everything that the Trumpkins are saying about Democrats and their pursuit of Trump is implicitly being validated by the unseriousness with which the Democrats in the Senate are taking the trial which is they just wanted to get him and they wanted to get him over and then they got him and uh, it was over. And so now, you know, they're moving on. They don't, you know, the whole point about this is it shouldn't matter whether or not impeachment is or is not a foregone or or conviction uh, is, you know, isn't going to happen. You don't put on a, a trial. uh, You know, it's like, uh, just because in the South, um, you know, a lynching trial was going to be, you know, a, ju- a jury, you know, in To Kill a Mockingbird, just because the the conclusion of the trial was foreordained, uh, doesn't mean you don't hold the trial in order to make sure that there is a public record of the facts in this case and a revelation potentially that our politics cannot or it has a deep weakness because it cannot hold someone accountable for a, you know, for despicable actions and behavior. So, uh, like I say, you know, uh, just everybody is Tartuffe. Everybody talks a high moral, talks in high moral dudgeon and does whatever the hell they want to. Um, that's our politics. Chuck, you know, if Chuck Schumer opens his mouth to talk about the, grave moral calamity that's represented by Republicans doing X, Y, and Z, fine. But I mean, you know, uh, I know a lot of us already don't take him seriously, but 
I'm just wondering, like people like you know Chris Hayes, who just wrote a big piece in the the Atlantic about how uh, we are not taking account of the fact that an enormous number of people in this country seem to think that our democracy doesn't matter anymore because they voted for Trump. Is he just going to let this go? This is his party. I mean, this is his game. This is his. These are his people. These are the people he's supposed to be celebrating every night on MSNBC, the way Fox celebrated the Trumpkins uh, during, you know, during the Trump administration. So is he going to just? My favorite part of that essay, by the way, a bit of a digression, but my, my the best part of that essay was his, you know, sort of babe in the wilderness, pie-eyed observation of the Republican Party that while it's moderating and getting less conservative, it's also getting more authoritarian. Weird. Isn't that weird? It's very weird. So I don't know. I mean, I just think it's we're we're, we're it's an interesting hinge moment, which is, you know, um the ultimate justification of the argument that has been made that it's everything is a hoax and all what they do is a hoax and all of that. They're going to end the Trump sort of the, this moment of Trump in office, depending on whether or not he tries to come back next time by, by implicitly acknowledging uh, the justice of the idea that everything they do is a hoax. Cause this is a hoax. This is a fake impeachment trial that they are refusing to engage. They are apparently going to refuse to engage in just so they can, you know, walk around saying, I sent you $1,400, you know, elect me in 2022. That's, uh, yeah, it's an interesting moment. Um, speaking of, uh, you know, something we haven't, haven't brought up <clears throat> is this, uh, much discussed piece by, uh, the, uh, columnist internet bullshit artist, Vic, uh, Virginia Heffernan, about how she's up in upstate New York, having left Brooklyn, where she is obliged to live by law, being who she is, uh, to 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 wait out the pandemic, and she and her uh, boyfriend or something get caught in a snowdrift in their car, and neighbors come and push them out and help them escape from the snowdrift, and uh, she realizes that they're uh, Trump voters, and therefore uh, she can't thank them for uh, anything. Um, so Virginia Heffer is a, a particular person. She is one of the first, she was one of the first people, uh, to become a Trump monomaniac. Uh, she started right. She was working for Slate. They started doing a podcast. Every tweet she ever wrote, everything she ever did. It was as though Trump moved into her brain at some point in 2016 and would not uh, let her let it go. Um, and, uh, she writes this piece as though, She's in the right, and I'm wondering what that tells us about the world of people who think as she thinks. Like, she doesn't apparently know that the idea that uh, people have views different from you and can be nice and, like, do a neighborly thing to help you totally out of the goodness of their heart requires you to be a civilized person and not an asshole and that you then praise yourself for being an asshole in an article is a pretty startling moment in American uh, sort of cultural life. Uh, weirdly, I think this is the flip side to what we were just talking about. Um, so we don't need to proceed with the, with the, with the trial with, with, with actually getting, getting Trump um, 
to 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 pay for for what he's done, whether or not they they have the goods. But if you supported Trump, you have to continue to pay. Um, the cultural aspect of all this has to continue to be prosecuted, and there is no let up or moving on from that. Well, and it's it's funny. It's kind of we've come full circle, right? Because remember the spate of articles right after Trump won, and and the liberal cultural establishment was still kind of reeling, and there were a lot of oh my God, what are we going to do? What if we see one of those people that's in his cabinet in a restaurant? What if we, you know, what if we see them on the street out in the wild? How do we behave? And, you know, remember there were Sarah Huckabee Sanders and a few others were actually, you know, kind of castigated in public when they were trying to dine out with their families. So it it has come full circle, but there seems to have been no moral reflection that's gone on in the last four years. And the thing, as someone who I live in a neighborhood and in a city where I am decidedly, my views are decidedly in the minority. I have deep, abiding friendships with many of my close neighbors. And we probably agree on nothing politically, nothing. (laughs) And the idea that it makes me very sad for Virginia Heffernan and people of her ilk, that they, that there's a, the litmus test on politics is the very first thing they go to in terms of building human connection and human bonds. And it, and, and whether or not it's exacerbated by the online, the way we live online or the way that, you know, politics is polarized, it's just deeply sad because you should be able to take people and separate, you know, I'm not talking about like white nationalists or something or, you know, violent Marxists, but most people have a, have a range of views, some of which you're not going to agree with and whether you're able to deal with them as decent people and acknowledge when they are being decent people, even if you don't agree with their stance on say abortion or guns is sad. And, and, and I don't think, I think it shows how straight, straight, interestingly, she's not a member of that community, right? She's someone who rented a place or goes to her vacation home or whatever. I think if you're embedded in a community where people have different views, you you do have to find a way to negotiate those. But it it was a kind of chilling piece, pun intended, with the snow. But still, it was it was it was chilling to read that after we've had so many years of people thinking about whether that's actually a healthy way to live your life in a democracy. Maybe I just <clears throat> lack the proper perspective, but it's been something that I've observed over the course of the last. <clears throat> a little longer than four years, I suppose, but it's a recent development in the last decade that maybe every fourth op-ed that I'll read should have been submitted to their therapist. That it, like that, honestly, that editorial judgment has, has across the board has become so lax that people are publishing things that are indicative of uh, a mental imbalance that don't deserve to be in an op-ed page that should be expressed uh, prone on a couch. See, I think that's an interesting perspective, but it, what it does, what it doesn't go to is whatever is going on in her head. It is, there is clearly an editorial hunger for the expression of views like this. That's the question is you're, you're looking at it and saying this is evidence of some kind of a personal uh, mental problem, but if what she reflects <clears throat> is a prevailing view that her editor, her three editors at wherever it is she published this, it was an L, I think, or something like that. Los Angeles Times, I think. Oh, was it? Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, like, they didn't say, you know what, Virginia, we really shouldn't publish this. It really doesn't make you or her or her boyfriend or whoever it is that she might, you know, show her work to before she sends it to her editor. 
Nobody said you shouldn't publish this because it makes you look horrible because they don't think it makes her look horrible. Well, that is sort of the nature of a moral panic, right? I mean, if, 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 that's, if that's what we're living through and I think you can make a case for it, then it is going to be popular by definition and there'll be many people willing to support it and express those views. The question that an editor should face is whether or not they deserve to be expressed in your venue. Yeah, well, and also there was nothing, yeah. there was nothing new about this. Remember the guy, right. we talked about the guy in the times who was basically saying, don't talk to your relatives if they support Trump, you know, reject them entirely. Yeah. There, there have been a series of these over the last four years. Right. But no, you you are, you are, you are saying it, it should be self-evidently clear to everybody that this is the evidence of a mental problem. And the fact that it's not self-evidently clear is what's interesting. It doesn't matter what Virginia Heffernan says or, 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 or doesn't say, uh, she is uh, she is an intellectual non-entity. She's somebody who wrote a book called uh, Magic and something or other. I can't remember what it was called about how glorious and wonderful and fabulous and creative the internet is in every possible way, sort of like the anti-Christine Rosen book. And now she hates the internet. Well, this I, her I, entire I, career was as a sort of internet <clears throat> suck-up. I will say no, that's not totally fair. Like her early stuff about the internet and about internet culture was really creative. And I actually read it. I didn't always agree with it, but she was really good at kind of capturing in a way that unfortunately we've now devolved into, into the TikTok New York times reporter model. Like Virginia actually did come at it with a bit more of a broader cultural frame and and did do some interesting work. And I don't know what maybe Trump, you know, ate her brain as you say, but it's, it's been kind of sad to see that decline. She's, but her book, I'm sorry, her book, maybe that was true of early essays, but her book went to the, you know, we're going to write wonderful new kinds of novels and entirely new forms of creative expression due to group contributions and uh, the art will be painted on iPads and you know it was like one of those <laughs> things and now she's like it's all the internet's fault Russia brainwashed people at Cambridge Analytica Russia actually the Facebook group down your throat and Mark Zuckerberg should be sent to Devil's Island I mean it's like pick a you know pick up down somewhere well but the russia it's interesting how the russia gate conspiracy theorizing uh turned a lot of internet boosters into immediate skeptics in a way that should i agree john should be treated with deep suspicion when it comes to their conclusions right it's it's not just the internet i mean it's it's uncurated internet it's just giving a microphone to every single person without again editorial judgment intervening in the process person She's not. She was like a she's like a successful New York journalist. She was one of the hosts of Slate's Trump cast. I know who she is. She's, she's also steeped in the kind of ethos that is predominant on social media. You can hear it in how she talks and how she says it. She's expressing thoughts that are conventional wisdom on the on the on social yeah, media. Did we bring this story to the 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 Trump story? To the to the podcast because this is my new favorite story. Apparently, Jason in the New York Post or it's it's actually in uh, the UK Sunday Times, but the New York Post picked it up and curated it, and that's where I found it. That <clears throat> that Donald Trump apparently, after being kicked off of every social media platform, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, now has a skip in his step and is the happiest guy in the world and is is really bored of politics and tired of politics and wants to reengage with life. And the birds are chirping and, you know, the, the, the berries taste sweeter. I mean, he's just had a, a fabulous life now that he's off the, I, I want to believe that. He should be a oh, Super no, Bowl ad next year. For a minute. <laughs> no one's making you stay on. I am. I am off. Oh, you the are? Only thing I, I've not, the only social media account I have is Twitter. I don't evangelize. Oh, like I don't evangelize. Well. 
about it. Well, that's I use it for work. And the only drug I take is heroin. The only porn site I subscribe to is Brazzers. Mm-hmm. I don't subscribe to any other porn site. Yeah, I, I, I indulge in a lot of things to excess, but I also know that I indulge them to excess. Fair enough. But yes, I understand that uh, you know t- Twitter is is super toxic, but it's it's something that I have to do for work. So it's something. It's like the, the fact that I drink eight cups of coffee every morning. I wouldn't do that. I don't do that on the weekends. And I'm a it's something I have to do for work. And However, you don't have to be on Facebook for work because Facebook is that's heroin. That's the real Facebook good stuff. Facebook is much better than Twitter. I'm sorry. Oh, way, way worse. Facebook is way, worse. way better than Twitter because Facebook doesn't have the, you know, go get them. You know, here, let me sick my mob on you. That, that is not Facebook. Facebook has a different. No, it's, it's, it's not Facebook. It's it's. Did you know that you can strap children to tables and sap their precious bodily fluids for uh, life, health, health, uh, uh, you know, uh, salubrious effects? This is something that my, my wife brings to me every other day. Oh, this is my this. I went to high school with this woman. What happened to her? What That's Facebook. Her? OK. All right. Listen, now we're now we're now we're going off into QAnon territory. So before we do that, uh, you know, let me just talk to you about our, our sponsor, Freshly. Um, you know, we're all trying to get in shape and eat right, and Freshly can help. Their delicious meals are designed by nutritionists, cooked by chefs, making it easier to eat better. And if you're stressed, you're tired, you don't feel like cooking, food that's fast doesn't have to be fast food. Freshly offers quality meals without the hard work of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. Um, Freshly offers chef-made, nutrient-packed, delicious meals delivered fresh to your door, no cooking required, and ordering is easy. Your meals arrive cooked and fresh every week, so you can keep your fridge stocked and skip the trip to the store. You visit Freshly.com. You choose from over 30 delicious, satisfying, better-for-you meals. Steak peppercorn, sausage baked penne, their chicken pesto bowl. Freshly can fit your lifestyle with a variety of plans and meals to pick from that work for your dietary needs, preferences, taste, and family size. And now our listeners can try Freshly for just $6.16 per meal. Stop searching the internet for healthy food near me every night and start living life freshly. Remember, those meals are always delivered fresh, never frozen, and are ready to heat and enjoy in just three minutes. And right now, Freshly is offering our listeners $40 off your first two orders when you go to Freshly.com slash commentary. Stop stressing about dinner. Go to Freshly.com slash commentary for $40 off your first two orders. That's Freshly.com slash commentary for $40 off your first two orders. Noah, uh, uh, Aaron Sabarium over at the Washington Free Beacon got himself access in some fashion or other to, yes, a Facebook group that is not dedicated to QAnon, but rather to the internal arguments at the New York Times. Distinction without a difference. Following the following the defenestration of two senior New York Times officials, longtime science reporter Donald McNeil and uh, podcast honcho and genius supposedly Andy Mills, uh, both of whom were compelled not only to resign if you want to call it that but as they were being ushered out the door for their crimes against humanity were obliged and i'm guessing for reasons having to do with their severance packages uh, to issue uh i uh, i i love big brother statements about how uh they were wrong and what they did was wrong and it's and their 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 works in progress 
and uh, and you know they really wanted to do better, but they understand blah 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 blah, and now they're out the door. And so Aaron Sabarium, uh, our one of um, and our you know our friend Eliana Johnson's employee at the Washington Free Beacon reveals that there are about you know three people at the New York Times who are apparently very angry about this and yelling back about the mistreatment of their colleagues in this Facebook group. Yeah, real struggle session stuff. Um, those those resignation letters, you know, read like Zinovia's confession. Um, and that just, they're designed to do that. And I think your inference there that there's money on the line makes a lot of sense. But this, this is great reporting by the um, Free Beacon is that in this group, you know, there was, uh, uh, to be expected, a lot more sympathy for the people who were, quote, harmed somehow by the expression of language, not with the intention to harm, but the just merely reciting events and reacting to events um, that, you know, the intention here on the part of these, uh, uh, you know, these inquisitors was to get a scalp and they got a scalp and they're defending their actions that delivered a scalp. Um, it's one thing, one of the best, there's two things that I like a lot about this. One thing was uh, somebody who was attacking the New York times guild for not failing, for failing to stand by its reporters and said, whatever happened to worker solidarity? Well, welcome to the workers Republic. This is how things go when, when you're in the dictatorship of the proletariat. Second um, was a, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's an absolute menace, um, was asked for a quote on this because she was about to be um, revealed as a participant in this thing. And um, the reporter who reached out to her did not only did not get a response, but she proceeded to uh, say on Twitter, you know, this person is trying to ask me for this for this quote. Here's his phone number. Um, You know, this is some sort of an offense, a sin against me you know, an attack on me somehow and not journalistic best practices. Um, that is a fireable offense in any, in any context, no journalistic institution should have her on board. Very similar to, to the um, conduct that we saw um, TikTok reporter Taylor Lawrence engage in recently. Um, the, they are New York times, TikTok New York, reporter. New York times, TikTok reporter Taylor Lawrence um, who misrepresented what somebody said in an, in a pathological months long effort to go after this one individual whom she doesn't like um, and misrepresented what he said in order to get him to have some sort of professional consequence to, to face some professional consequence. That's not reporting. I don't know what you call it. There's a lot of uh, words you could use to describe it, but it's not journalism and any institution that's affiliated with these people should be embarrassed by their association and and move quickly to remedy that fact and that they're not, indicates you know who's in charge over here and it's terrifying it's shocking what this institution is doing to itself okay so this is interesting to me because once again uh there's the world as 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 it should be and there's the world as it is and you're saying they this shouldn't be permitted they are it is the editors the top editors at the times who ran donald mcneil and andy mills out of the times Granted, there's a mob, you know, that insisted on it, but you now want them to turn around and discipline Nicole Hannah-Jones for bad behavior? They are the abettors of her behavior. They are the creators of her behavior. They are the... they. Yeah, they, they are, are quite, quite clearly. Um, but the New York Times uh, 1619 project is, for lack of a better word, an embarrassment to the institution. Um, it doesn't seem like anybody's willing to confront that fact. They get a lot of rewards, awards for it, but those awards are fraudulent. 
because this project was a failure. This project was an embarrassment. It was factually inaccurate. It became a source of controversy and the paper had to correct the record. That's the sort of thing that should yield professional consequences. And I say should, because obviously it didn't, but the world as it should be isn't something we should lose sight of just because the world as it is, is terrible. Okay, but um, we deal with the world as it is, and the point is precisely that the 1619 Project is not viewed as an embarrassment. It is viewed as a feather in the Times' cap. It is the motive force of the Times' advertising. They spent millions of dollars advertising on the Super Bowl last year promoting the 1619 Project after... They had to correct the record about it. Yeah, so I, think, I get it. So it's not, but it's let's not call it journalism. No, let's call it content. Let's call it uh, I don't know agitation. I don't know what the word for it is, but it's not reporting. I don't, well, for sixteen nineteen, the word is propaganda. Um, yeah, but I I don't accept the notion that the word journalism is an elevated word. It literally refers to things that are printed in journals, and so therefore it is a descriptive word, not something that deserves to be treated like you know. Journalism is good and content is bad. All journalism is content and all content is journalism if it's published in a journal. And so therefore, again, what we're talking about here is a three or four people at the Times felt it uh, uh, felt it they could not hold back. Robert Worth, Stephen Greenhouse is the one who said, what about worker solidarity, who's a labor reporter, uh, uh, Michael Powell, uh, who has, you know, who sort of retweeted re- uh, a sort of defense of free speech from the, from Penn uh, about, you know, the, about the effective dismissals of these people. But of course, you know, you look at that and you think, wow, they're really brave. Well, it shouldn't be brave. That's the whole point. That's why, you know. Well, and the, uh, the, the important distinction with this Don McNeil case, which I, I don't know if all of our listeners know this, is that he was initially reprimanded because he used the N-word in a descriptive capacity, not as it, not, he mentioned it as a kind of, oh, you're he talking. He was asked he was by asked, somebody right. who used the word. Right. Who was presenting, what, you know, this moral dilemma for whether this individual who used the word should be fired as a result. And in his response, he used the he word used the to word. illustrate the distinctions between the offensive and inoffensive context. Exactly. Exactly what you, and, and I think it was a kid who asked him on one of these like times, you know, lucrative times tour things that they do. So the idea that, I mean, I, I, when you read the description of what happened to him, you're like, it was like someone laid a trap for him and he walked right into it. But the Times knew this. They they kind of reprimanded him, but he wasn't fired. It was only when the Daily Beast reported on the fact that he was still employed, even though he was using the N word not as a not as a slur, not as anything other than like a descriptive. Oh, so you this is you know as, as Noah described, it wasn't good enough. And the irony, of course, with someone like Nicole Hannah Jones in particular is that she uses that word on her own Twitter account. The Times itself has used that word in the exact capacity that McNeil used it in a descriptive capacity in the course of telling a story or clarification. So the idea that he gets fired while all everybody else and the, and the institution itself, it doesn't have to play by those rules is I think from an employment perspective, completely illegitimate. No, it's a sin. It's a sin to retroactively establish that standard. They, they said that there's this, this is a standard. You didn't violate it. And then the the internet mobs got a hold of this story and said this is your standard and then they said no this is our new standard right no, so they and this has always been our standard and he'll so be they, right <laughs> so they laid out they've laid out a standard which is absolutely jaw dropping 
and which taken to its logical conclusion means that everybody everywhere in the history of mankind needs to be fired by the New York Times. Well, and you shouldn't believe a word that's printed in the New York Times going forward. Context doesn't matter, right? We do not tolerate racist language regardless of intent. Mm -hmm. Okay? So uh, no one can read Huckleberry Finn, where there is a character called N-Word Jim, right? We do not tolerate that language. Or, uh, but also no one can read the diary of Malcolm X either by that standard. <laughs> yeah, but it also means, well, and you can't report on, uh, 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 you know, uh, racist events, right? Which which are critical and you know crucial to to people's well being if if they are indeed on the rise. Look, but we, that's the thing; it's that it's not a real standard. I mean, that's the the unspoken thing here is that we all know it's not a real standard. But it is a real standard. standard they just now. invented here because they wanted to get out from under under the pressure they were under. And it's not a standard that they will adhere to going forward. Oh, they yes, can't it do is. Their job. They can't do their job. Oh, yes, by it adhering is. To the standard. It is totally their standard because Nicole Hannah-Jones handed them the means by which they can do their jobs when they want to, which is that there is a difference between the use of the N-word and the use of the N-word when it ends with an A oh, instead right. of an E-R. It's a matter of okay, that she used the word. Wrong. It doesn't matter about intent. Who cares what her intent was? Her intent was to educate, but we don't care about her intent anymore. She used the word, gone. Okay, mark my words, within a year, anyone who even uses the phrase, the N-word, is going to be subjected to a similar sort of... You're not going to be allowed to say a lot of anything remotely related to this, unless you're a rap artist, and then you can say Well, you know, Taylor Taylor Lawrence, TikTok reporter, uh, her thing when she went after... uh, when she went after Mark Andreessen, the, the venture capital, the Silicon Valley venture capitalist, against whom she has a, a grudge, I presume, because he's kind of libertarian in his politics, um, and his partner is David Horowitz's son, uh, that um, she said he used the R slur. And, you know, I'm like, I, 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 I looked at this and I was like, what what's the r slur like is this i I like had to i had to spend like two minutes trying to this is like a rebus that i couldn't solve you know like like looking at a you know concentration board i couldn't make sense out of and then i kind of figured it out um the r slur that's good that's you know you're 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 consuming journalism when you have to really ponder you know what they're what they're trying to tell you, and if you actually determine understand what they're trying to tell you, you're probably a terrible person. Yeah. Like you can't actually understand what they're saying because then they've got you. But look, you know this standard, uh, regardless of intent, we've seen this with a couple of these horrible crucible-like assaults on these teenage kids who are taped somewhere. Uh, mouthing words to rap lyrics and they're white and they use the end with an A at the end of it word. And then they're hauled up on charges before a star chamber and they're just singing a song or, 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 or speaking back lyrics uh, from material that they purchased that is available on the open market. And that somehow they are obviously singing because they like it, not because they want to defame and demean people. And what's more, I think this is a perfectly acceptable standard if the standard were 
that rappers couldn't use the N-word, then they shouldn't use the N-word. Right. Because, but we're not talking about a standard. Again, we're talking about standard, exercise though. and power. No, because standards standards don't change. Stand, the rules of the game don't change in the middle standard. of the road. That's a standard. This isn't a standard. This is an exercise in power across the board. And it doesn't matter what the, the standards are give you fluid a, and evolving. Standards do change. Go ahead. Use the word Negro in an article which is what you were supposed to do 60 years ago in order to pay proper respect to black people. Use the word black black in an article without capitalizing it. I'm just saying standards change all the time. Morals don't change. Ethics don't change. But standards do change. And you can create a circumstance under which... Standards do change, but they are not retroactively applied. If we were to go back in time... And, and watch a, a 60 Minutes report on the 1967 riots in, in which everything was described as you describe it, John, and retroactively called for the careers of anybody who's still in journalism today, then that wouldn't be a standard at all. That would be a witch hunt. But I mean, you know, this is what we're doing. This is what the San Francisco <laughs> School Board is doing by saying Abraham Lincoln shouldn't have a school named after him. I mean, it's ridiculous. We are opposed to this. This is everything that we hate. This is the revolution. This is the unraveling we're trying to stop. But that it is a real thing that is being imposed by the most important journalistic institution on the planet Earth by saying that uh, intent doesn't matter when using a word or when saying something. Intent no longer matters. Um, that is a new standard, and it is a terrifying standard because it can be used against anybody at any time. And my deepest and most fervent hope is that it is used against the people who promulgate it. Um, the, the... But before Dean Baquette retires, I hope that he is hauled up on charges by the very people whom he is empowering to destroy our culture. Yeah, you you won't get your wish. <laughs> But um, the reason it is such a uh, chilling new standard, the idea that context doesn't matter, is because it, it is a standard that has built into it the um, foreclosing of any defense or discussion. You know, it is a it is a it's a trick in a way. It 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 it, sh- it shuts down the the opportunity for a defense. It's also the perfect standard for the internet mob age, right? You cannot have context if you want to incite a mob. You just have to have fear, anger, reprisal, whatever the standard is for the mob to act. The only thing that it has to lack is context. Uh, It's so depressing. And yet, you know, there's something delicious about it because they are putting it all on the line here. They are saying we are, you know, we are full participants in the destruction of all uh, fairness and freedom and a proper functioning of our newsroom. And let's see, listen, this is the other problem. The New York Times now has 7 million subscribers. It is the great, it is the, it is the thing that was most rewarded by the Trump era and by the internet era. This paper that was like on its heels and borrowing money from a Mexico City billionaire just to stay afloat seven years ago is now, you know, like uh, rolling uh, in, in, in dough and in subscribers and everything like that. Um, let's see how they are, how they find it possible to function. Um, and let's see what horrors they perpetrate because you go down this road 
and this is my prediction. So Dean Baquette is not going to get fried for you know misusing a you know for you for saying, oh really? You said Jew? <laughs> That's not very nice. The way you said Jew, you know whatever. <laughs> I mean, um, but uh, you you start treating certain topics and people and all this with kid gloves. And that's how you get Janet Cook. That's how you get uh, articles. This sort of goes to Noah's odd point about the op-eds, but not that. It's more like you do not subject the work of favored populations to strict scrutiny because you are too scared to do so and because you think, well, I don't really have the cultural knowledge to know whether or not what is being promulgated here is, you know, factual, and they're saying, well, I can't really tell you who so-and-so is because the cops are going to come after them, and, you know, the cops and and black people, and you can't have that and all of that, and you are going to have hoaxes. You are going to have, you, there is going to be a reckoning going down this road. It's like, uh, it is inevitable. I don't know when, I don't know who, I don't know how. Well, this is why, actually, when those of us who've been monitoring the way that words have been uh misused, abused, massaged to get to that point, John. So you have, this was the argument that uh, journalist Wes Lowry made about moral clarity. Like we have to abandon objectivity because it's actually racist. So moral clarity is what we have. And so there are certain stories that really only certain kinds of people can tell, which goes to another thing we hear a lot more, which is about, you know, uh, my truth and how the experiential standard that's now being set. And unfortunately, this is radically infecting politics um, as well, that a person's individual experience, even if it's in opposition to what are kind of understandable facts, is going to take precedence. Um, it's and it this is goes to the point that I think Noah's made a couple of times. It's really true. This is a this is a religion. That's testimony. Your personal testimony is more powerful than any you know facts a scientist might bring to bear about your faith, for example. And that's a very dangerous standard. This moral clarity, this personal experience, this my truth. That is the that's been growing for I would say the last ten years, and combined with this kind of grand inquisitor style of of punishing the non elect is is incredibly dangerous for understanding truth at the very time that those same institutions are convinced that they have to fight disinformation and misinformation if it's coming from the conservative side of the aisle. It's also just really childish. I mean, the notion yeah. that that truth is subjective. Whereas morality is an objective metric that all of us subscribe to and understand intuitively, is just a juvenile thing to think. Well, I mean, it's 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 the it's the logical end result of of I mean, I hate to put it this way, post war philosophy. I mean, it, you know, it sounds pretentious to say this, but uh, this is if you want to know the three or four generation uh, decline of uh, of ideas and thinking, this is deconstructionism and structuralism uh, going down, you know, like leeching its way from incomprehensible French texts into pretentious nonsense English departments that seem to turn a blind eye to the fact that people were Nazi collaborators who are now saying there's no such thing as truth, to the students who then take these ideas and somehow uh, help uh, use them to express certain things. And then they just leech down to high schools and everything. And then there's no objective reality and everything is subjective. And there is no such thing as, uh, you know, as, as, as fact or anything like that, because it's all perceptual. Um, and then we get back to the fact that this all was promulgated in part by somebody who was desperately trying to hide the fact that he was a Nazi, Paul Dema. So, you know, 
and and here we are uh, in this totalitarian. We're now in this sort of world of cultural totalitarianism or uh, wannabe cultural totalitarianism. Um, but you know what is real? You know what is factual? You know what is hard and fast and you can't get away from it? It's like what your finances look like uh, after you uh, after you have to meet reality in the form of the markets. And if you want to understand how your money plays with the markets and with public policy and with the new administration and all that, as I keep telling you, you got to look to our friends at the Bonson Group. Uh, David Bonson runs a bi-coastal uh, financial services and management firm uh, with $2.7 billion under management, and he produces every week two internet products, thedctoday.com and dividendcafe.com, that are absolutely essential in understanding what's going on in the markets and in the interplay of the markets and public policy, and the new administration, and the Senate, and COVID, and all kinds of other things on a daily basis. And then the question of what the longer-term effects of these policies are going to be on the investment uh, atmosphere and our macroeconomics generally, that's something you can follow on a weekly basis at DividendCafe.com. So check out the Bonson Group, DividendCafe.com thedctoday.com for an antidote to the intellectual spaghetti that is most financial advice in the United States. And we thank the Bonson Group for sponsoring the commentary podcast. So guys, uh, uh, what else? <laughs> what else do we have to talk about aside from cultural totalitarianism, the Senate, no one's serious. Um, we're about to just sort of like la-di-da pass a $2 trillion uh, bill. Um, with a 50-50 Senate, which, by the way, is a kind of, the more you think about it, it's polling great and all of that. This is a kind of a high-stakes move. I mean, uh, the fact that there is no Republican buy-in, which, you know, fine, so there was no Democratic buy-in on any Republican legislation, but um, uh, this is like a big, <laughs> this is this is the biggest piece of legislation that has ever been passed, and um, if it doesn't have outsized benefits, um I don't know. No one's going to be able to run away from it on the Democratic side. Every single Democratic politician in the country will vote for it, and no Dem- no Republican politician will vote for it. And Republicans will go, oh, boy, you know, the deficit just went up 200 gazillion dollars, and this happened, and that happened, and the other thing happened. And, and you know, so... We should, we should talk about that briefly, because <clears throat> first of all, just as a digression, I'm kind of repulsed by people who are like, well, this polls really well. I mean, yeah, we kind of know that voting yourself the Treasury is popular, it's not something that we should engage in all the time. These are extraordinary circumstances. I get it. But you should be really reticent to engage in that kind of politics because it's facially dangerous. Anyway, um, we had a, a nice, nice piece, uh, by the way, in the New York Times, which still sometimes does some pretty good journalism about how the um, um, $15 minimum wage, which seems to be uh, on the way out, or at least a bargaining chip that can be thrown away, that the the forces in favor of this thing got some good news from the CBO yesterday because yeah it'll cost 1.4 million jobs but it'll also blow up the deficit isn't that great why is that great it's great because the forces who favor this thing believe that because it has a negative effect on the deficit explodes the deficit by 50 billion dollars that it constitutes a budget maneuver and therefore, it can be addressed in reconciliation, which requires only a simple majority to pass. Now, opponents of this note that it only blows up the deficit because you've cost 
million jobs, that it's a negative effect on revenue because those people are no longer paying the taxes they would pay if they were generating the kind of revenue that they were when they were employed. And therefore, it's an incidental effect on the budget. It's it's sort of a, a it has a, a secondary a second order effect that has a, a negative effect on the on the budget. It's not itself a budget maneuver, but it tell it's a, it exposes a lot about how these people think because it has two negative effects, and the one that provides them with some sort of a parliamentary maneuver is the best news they've had in weeks. So if I were a Republican up for re-election in 2022, I would pay very close attention to the exchange that happened between a Fox News reporter and Jen Psaki, I think it was yesterday, in, in a press briefing, because she was absolutely hammered with questions about, okay, so you're promising all these green new jobs, but we know that all these other jobs are going to be lost. What do you tell those people, the people who lost their jobs and who cannot feed their family on the figment of a promise of being a solar panel installer in 10 years? Like, what do you tell those people? And she could not answer the question. And that, I think, is going to prove, even if everybody's happy to see an immediate check, when it comes time to reelect, if this, if this massive bill doesn't have an answer to people who lose their jobs and doesn't have an answer to the the uh, the actual human effect of some of the social engineering stuff that they're trying to do they're going to have a problem with that and republicans should actually seize that opportunity to say this is why we wanted something that was more targeted and to to take the the kind of social engineering aspect of this stuff and often deal with that individually which i think john you've been arguing for for a while she could not answer that question it's her job to be able to answer that question it's a political question um, and it should be something that they're on top of. They don't really have a decent answer to that question yet. I think uh, two two things re- regarding the minimum wage. It's very hard to negotiate over the minimum wage if you are a conservative because um, it is axiomatic that the proper minimum wage should be zero. There should not be a minimum wage in the United States. Um, there shouldn't be. Well, a the minimum, minimum wage, wage is zero. That's just a fact of life. Right. Okay, right. But I mean, there should the, the minimum wage is absolutely horrendous, horrific policy, and is a is a horror show. Um, so, what does this tell us? Uh, you know, therefore saying, well, you know what, I'll 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 vote for you know uh, ten seventy five as opposed to fifteen. That's very hard. Like, don't own it don't own it like you you what you want to what you want under those circumstances is to argue that this is a job killing first job killing measure that is a form of a regressive tax on the least able both to pay and to deal and to and to cope uh in, in the economy that's number 1 number 2 it's not just that they said that uh this is going to cost uh 1.4 million jobs it was that it's going to increase the income of 900,000 people which sounds like a fair offset right so it's like okay so it's only 500,000 jobs that are re- you know it's only really bad for for net 500,000 people every single one of those people whose income will be raised uh by government fiat from wherever it was to $15 would get that raise in a year in an ordinary economy by being able to leverage their work experience to go work somewhere else, having established a good record where they are or in a growing economy where there was, as there was right before COVID, you know, a a real uh, upward pressure on wages and salaries because of full employment. And so you are basically just sort of front-loading by order uh, 
like a, a directed raise that people could get anyway in order to make a stand on on this kind of um, fetish, this minimum wage fetish that we know is going to have this job-killing consequence. And um, it's a hard argument to make because when you say to people, should you be paid X, they'll say yes. But that's always the question about these kind of questions. Like, should you be paid X if the net result is a loss of millions of jobs? They might say no, because they know perfectly well that their salaries can change. Now, before I, before we get to Abe's point on this, let me just point out that we've been talking about the internet all show and big tech is there not only trying to suppress uh, speech the way the New York Times is trying to suppress the speech of its of, of its people, but it's also selling you while it's suppressing your speech. So why are we giving these tech companies all of our personal data? The lines have been drawn. Big tech has made it clear which side they're on. Now is the time to take a stance. Protect your personal data from big tech with the VPN I trust for my online protection express VPN. Look, every device, whether you're on your phone, laptop, or TV, has a unique string of numbers called an IP address. When you search for stuff, watch videos, or even click a link, big tech companies can use that IP to track all your activity and tie it back to you. So when I use ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through their secure encrypted servers, so these companies can't see my IP address at all. My internet activity becomes anonymized and my network data is encrypted. And the best part is you don't need to be tech savvy at all. Just download the app on your phone or computer, tap one button, and you're protected. Stop handing over your data to big tech companies whose aim is to censor you and spy on you. Defend your rights. Protect your internet activity with the VPN I use every day. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash commentary to get an extra three months free. Go to expressvpn.commentary right now to learn more. Abe, I think I was interrupting you. You weren't, but I do have, but I do have a point to make about the minimum wage, which is that um, what's frustrating here is that uh, if there is um, a, uh, if employment numbers continue to look better just by virtue of our pulling out of the pandemic, um, any effect of any aspect, by the way, of, of, of this of this legislation that any conservatives were worried about can be poo-pooed because there is a the larger pull of just our actual recovery from out of the pandemic. And people can say, see how conservatives were worried that this would be bad, that would be bad, and there's no receipt. Well, look how much better we're doing. I think that's absolutely right. So we don't we don't, you know, it's an interesting uh, gambit. Um but you play the the, heart, the the hand you're dealt. So uh, uh, Democrats are leveraging uh, their uh, admittedly weaker power, uh, but power nonetheless to do uh, to work their will and to do what they can. It shows you, by the way, um, not to end on an anti-Trump note, but it shows you just how unbelievably incompetent Trump was at the beginning of his presidency. Biden's going to get this bill. Trump could have gotten 10 billion things in the first couple of months in 2017 had he allowed it to happen. But he squashed Paul Ryan's repeal and replace plan. He squashed Paul Ryan's how to pay for the border wall plan. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know what he was doing. He he like, he like defaulted to executive orders rather than legislative successes. 
And you can see how a more competent person who had some idea about how power works in Washington could have worked his will the way Biden and the Democrats are working their will uh, right now. Um, and and they are going to work their will and they're going to own everything. I think as Abe says, though, you know, chances are they're going to have a good story to tell and not a bad story to tell in 2022. And we will therefore find ourselves uh, in a new period in which government activism and unbelievable deficit spending, not that we haven't been doing unbelievable deficit spending already, um, seem to have been vindicated by the by the by the condition of the American economy that will literally have nothing to do with this and have everything to do with uh, the fact that uh, everything is going back to normal. If it goes back to normal, which of course, as we told you yesterday, they're also telling us it will never go back to normal. So with that, kept you again for too long. I'm really sorry. Uh, You know, we just, we, we can't help it apparently. And we also had three ads, which is great for us, but maybe stretches us a little further than we should otherwise uh try to try to compress it tomorrow uh for abe christina no i'm john potwaritz keep the candle burning